Welcome to the second Sunday of Easter. We're one week into this 50-day feast, which will end at Pentecost with flames falling on the disciples in the upper room, the gift of the Holy Spirit. 50 days of feasting follows our 40-day fast. The feast is always greater than the fast. It's one week later for us, but only a few hours for the disciples since we left them. They are hiding in a locked room, gutted, really, afraid for their lives. They've heard about sightings of Jesus, but the reports came from, well, a certain type of person. You know, the kind? Women? (laughs) The type of people whose word wouldn't count in a court of law at the time. So, The disciples sit in this locked, darkened room like mourners after a wake. They eat the food of grief, stale bread and overripe fruit, half a box of store-bought cookies, mindless reruns playing endlessly on the television. Thomas isn't here. Thomas has never liked being shut away. He's currently pacing the streets, glowering at everyone who passes and hoping for a fight. Grief swells in the disciples' chests for their dead leader, killed in the revolution that they were sure was going to take place. It was not much of a revolution. The one time there was any hint of action, their leader calmly picked up the piece of a severed ear off the ground and reattached it to its owner as though the disciples were doing something wrong here and not the guards. And now they are alone. Their grief twists inside them with guilt. They left their friend to die rather than meet the same fate. Their grief sits like lead in their bellies because they were wrong about him. And now they would go through the rest of their lives known as the followers of a failed movement, and not even a very spectacular one at that. Jesus had kept promising something about being glorified, but there was no hint of glory in the end. It is in this locked, darkened room where Jesus appears. They'd report later that, ridiculous as it sounded, he came in through the wall. Someone asked, like a ghost? No, they said, not like a ghost. We could see him and touch him, and he was real. Almost like he was more real than ever. Like the things of our world were insubstantial now compared to how real he was. The walls were flimsy, not him. Jesus comes to them in their grief and their guilt and their doubt. He breathes on them. And this is one of the rare occasions where I like John's gospel better than any other. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit in John's telling. In 50 days, we will tell the story of Pentecost with Many languages and tongues of fire are falling from the heavens, but John says no shouting, no accusations of being drunk, no fire or rushing winds. 
The coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, had a different sort of power. Something as quiet as a breeze, as stirring as a loved one's breath on your cheek. And not just any loved one. One you'd betrayed. One you had misunderstood. One you were sure you would never see again. With his breath, their small and doubt-filled and grief-stricken room fills with forgiveness. Peace, he says. Now you go and do the same. Rowan Williams writes, There is no hope of understanding the resurrection outside the process of renewing humanity in forgiveness. We are all agreed that the empty tomb proves nothing. We need to add that no amount of apparitions, however well authenticated, would mean anything either, apart from the testimony of forgiven lives communicating forgiveness. It all wouldn't mean anything, apart from the testimony of forgiven lives communicating forgiveness. Sometimes you'll hear this Sunday referred to as Doubting Thomas Sunday. Until now, I've only ever preached it on t- in terms of what you do with your doubts, because it's really the one Sunday a year that opens up the door to exploring that worthy subject, something that every Christian, every human faces doubt. But I thought I'd tell you this year, that this story is not about one disciple who doubts. It's about all of them who did. The whole crew fell apart in the face of Jesus' death. Thomas didn't believe the disciples. The disciples didn't believe Mary. And none of them had believed who Jesus had said he was. They wanted one thing of God, and they got something else entirely. And it made them all hit rock bottom. This story is actually about resurrection and what it means, what it looks like. Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Forgive the sins of any, and they are forgiven. Retain the sins of any, and they are retained. This gift gives you that awful power to call the ones who have harmed you friends. Conversely, it seems to give you the terrible freedom to retain your enemies. This week, my sister called me to tell me a story of something awful that had happened to her. Someone had done her a a, a wrong, a terrible wrong. And she hadn't retaliated. I think what it was wasn't important. Because you know what it's like. Replaying a bad interaction over and over in your mind. What you should have done differently. The things you should have said. Scripting the fantasies of revenge that actually make you feel worse for having not done them the first time around. Like you have failed on some basic level. That's where she was. And she called to tell me that she had had an epiphany. 
that in not doing exactly the things she wished she had done, by not retaliating or escalating, she had shown a strength that she had never been taught. We were raised in a family where anger and retribution was lauded as the correct reaction to anyone who wronged you. I think we were all raised in a world like that. But it was that moment of realization for her that her weakness had been a sign of some deeper and truer strength. It made the sins something that could be erased with a breath. It made her more substantial, as though the walls of hatred and fear were flimsy compared to the stuff she was made of. That's what resurrection is like. Forgiven lives, communicating forgiveness.